0: Good morning once again. It is my pleasure to continue uh, what we've been working through. Um, Pastor Ron, has, this is his last week, that he will be gone. And so he will be back next week preaching. So we are looking forward to that um, for all of us. So I've always admired the greatest coaches in professional and collegiate sports and their ability to keep their teams focused on the main goal that is in front of them. One of my all-time favorites, even though he was well before my time, is John Wooden, who coached UCLA college basketball to 10 national championships within 12 years. An absolutely unprecedented run. And within that time, he actually won seven national championships in a row. And during those seven years, they lost a total of five games during that span absolutely unprecedented. You will not see anybody do that nowadays, I think, because competitive competitive athletics now are way too even. But as such, he is considered not only the greatest NCAA basketball coach of all time, but the greatest coach of all time in any sport. But what made Coach Wooden so special was not his determination to win, it's actually quite the opposite. You see, his players hardly recollect him mentioning winning to them at all, but that he was far more concerned about their character and that they did their absolute best in everything that they did. This was the mission for his team. You see, he did not define success by a certain amount of wins or championships, but simply success by doing your absolute best to accomplish what you are most capable of. And I think in our day, as is typical truly with humans, we struggle to stay focused on a main task and main principles in our lives. We hear a story about a man like John Wooden, and we think, oh, that's really, that's nice for him. But cannot imagine how we would do that for ourselves. However, Jesus has given us a very clear mission, and it's much more important than John Wooden's. What is it? Well, we look at Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, our mission, our goal as followers of Christ is to make disciples and teach them how to follow Jesus. And yet, as I look at the landscape of Christianity and kind of at my own life, I see various other missions being portrayed, like living your best life. You only live once. God only wants you to be happy and other kind of things like that. But none of these are biblically true and are not part of the mission that we have been given as well, we tend to be more focused on our jobs, the success, the success of our kids, our schooling, sports teams uh, activities you name it instead of the mission of Jesus. So what this means that is that Christians have become distracted from the mission of Jesus by subordinate priorities so today we 're going to pinpoint four principles that will help us continue the mission of Jesus. so please turn in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and today is a final message in the series the now and the not yet considering the tension we live in as christians where jesus declared the kingdom is here now but yet has also declared that it is not yet that there is some future that is going to come and we've been studying the book of Thessalonians in order to understand that. And just by quick, a quick reminder, the letter of the second Thessalonians was written by Paul to the church of Thessalonica in response to a previous letter, first Thessalonians, he wrote to the church, where they still had questions and were confused about, the, how, about Jesus' return and how they were supposed to live as a result. And so today there was a way that some people were living in the Thessalonian community that Paul deeply disapproved of and sought to correct. You see, some Thessalonians had allowed for themselves to get distracted from the mission laid out before them by Paul and had prioritized other things over living their lives for Jesus. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 5. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. So Paul begins to conclude this letter by focusing on one more issue. But before he does that, he asks for the Thessalonians to pray for him. What Paul is doing here is he's showing that even he is dependent on God and needed prayer to continue doing what he was doing, even though he was the great apostle Paul. So his first request is that the gospel message would spread rapidly. More literally speaking, the Greek says that the word of the Lord would run and uh, and move swiftly to accomplish God's purposes and that it would be glorified honored because of the effects that it has on people to change them and thus they would glorify God as a result you see this is what had happened to the Thessalonians and so he wants it to happen to others as well But then Paul wants them to pray that he would be delivered or rescued from evil and wicked people. When he says wicked, he means that which is out of place and improper. And by evil, this is an active evil, not some passive acceptance. And what Paul was dealing with is he was facing some opponents in the city of Corinth, where we believe he likely wrote this letter from, who were people who had no allegiance to the teachings of Jesus, had no faith in him whatsoever, and so they were evil and wicked they were actively pursuing him trying to stop him in what he was doing so paul is asking the thessalonians to d- pray for his deliverance from these people but what paul does here in the greek is actually really beautiful and we can't really quite catch it in english because we have to switch the word order around to make it make sense for us what he does here is he does this play on words at the end of verse 2 and the beginning of first verse, verse 3 paul ends verse 2 with this greek word pistis which means faith it's a uh, he uses it here as a noun to describe the faith so that's what he's talking about here and he says not everyone has the faith the faith in christ but then verse three actually begins with the word pistos which is an adjective used to describe god as being faithful You see, this is a consistent attribute about God revealed in the Old Testament that he revealed of himself to the people of Israel. It means he acts consistently, always true to his divine nature and character and acts on behalf of his people for their good. So by writing in this way, by having this wordplay, having these two words back to back, Paul is doing a couple of things. First, in the Greek, there was no punctuation or break in the words. So they would go right back to back next to each other. But second, what he's doing is he's contrasting the lack of faith in his wicked opponents with the faithfulness of Jesus. Because there's something else we need to understand too. When Paul uses the word curios, he's actually, or the word Lord that we translate or that we use, we translate the word curios to translate as Lord. What Paul is doing is he's using this to consistently refer to Jesus. That's how Paul is using this word. And so I've said it before, and I'll say it again, because Paul. Does this to equate Jesus with the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, that they are one and the same. Especially since the faithfulness of God is a staple to his character for the nation of Israel. You see, the divine nature of who God is is what grounds Paul to continue the mission. And so then he says the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and he will protect you from the evil one. Notice that the one who is doing the work is the Lord, or Jesus in terms of what Paul meant. So we have to understand this. Jesus is the one who gives you strength to endure because he is faithful. Jesus is the one who guards you from the evil one. You see, this is not a work that we do, but that he does as we walk in obedience to him. So then when Paul says the evil one at the end of verse 3, he is talking about Satan. And what he's doing is he's piggybacking off of what Jesus had said in the Lord's prayer. That to deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. You see, it's not a promise that the Lord will keep us from sinning but that he will protect us from the attacks of Satan. This doesn't mean, of course, that nothing bad is going to happen in our lives. We all know that that's not true. But that Satan's attacks do not have the final word, but Jesus does. And so verse 4 is kind of an interesting wording here. Essentially, Paul is saying that his confidence rests in the Lord, which then gives him the confidence in the Thessalonians. Because they have showed legitimate faith in the past, Paul believes in the faithfulness of God to perfect those who trust in him, which includes these Thessalonians. And so Paul believes that they will do what he is about to command them because they have a legitimate faith in Christ. But notice as well that Paul doesn't politely suggest what he wants them to do. He commands it. And so because of his authority as an apostle of Jesus, being like an Old Testament prophet, speaking on behalf of the Lord, he can make this kind of command. I cannot, as a pastor, that is not, that is not part of my job. I can only point you to the points where there are commands. And so these commands then have to do with what he's going to talk about in verses 6 through 12, and we'll get there in a little bit. But once again... Paul concludes a section in this letter with a prayer in verse 5. And he prays for Jesus to direct the hearts of the Thessalonians toward the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. You see, when Paul uses the word direct, it means to make straight, like removing obstacles from a path. He's asking for their entire lives to be opened up by Christ to be fully devoted and concentrated on him, and that we would then respond to God's incredible love for us through Christ, and that then he would help us to persevere to the level that Christ did when he went to the cross. But I want us again to notice overall who is the one doing the work of this mission, who is working in us, which gives us our first principle to continue the mission, is that we pray for the Lord's character to direct the mission. Yes, we ought to consult good business practices for how we operate as a church. But the direction of our mission is based first and foremost on the character and goodness of God. Anything else distracts us from our mission and focuses us in a direction that is not according to God's word. And it is from his word and his life that we find our primary direction. You see, if we ever reach a moment where we're in conflict between a method of the world and the method of Jesus, the method of Jesus should win every single time in our minds. And it is in his character to be the one to guide us, to strengthen us, to guard us, and lead us to do what he has called us to do. You see, as soon as we base it in our abilities to accomplish this mission in front of us, our best strategies rather than on the character of Jesus is when we lose sight of what he wants for us. So if there is any confusion on this for you and how you're, you should go about doing this, start by praying for yourself what Paul prayed for the Thessalonians, that the Lord would make it extremely clear, open up the path for you to be able to serve him on this mission. So if you don't know what your gifting is and how he wants to use you, ask him to help you find it. If you don't feel like you know enough about the Bible, ask him to give you wisdom and the fortitude to study his word. And if you're feeling extreme anxiety about living for him in this kind of mission, then ask him to give you the strength to do it, because he will strengthen you. He is faithful. You see, these are the kinds of prayers that the Lord always wants to answer, because they are right within his character to do so. Let's continue, verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. So Paul's command comes across kind of strongly here, but Because he goes right to brothers and sisters, there is actually a note of tenderness here. And so he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, he's listing out these commands he's just laid out nearly as authoritatively as possible because of his position as an apostle. But he inserts the word the Lord to buttress this idea that Jesus is more than just our Savior who forgives our sins, but he is our Lord. And thus we must serve him and obey him as such because he is our Lord. So this command does not just come from Paul, it comes from Jesus as well. And so when Paul uses the word command, it's like this military general commanding his troops. And the command is to stay away from the idle and disruptive. And we'll talk about what that fully means in a little bit. But first, to keep away just means a withdrawal, about being aloof. And notice that the distinction here is that you're doing it from believers from brothers that they were to separate themselves so in everything that paul is doing here it's not actually a punitive action but it's about redemptive trying to bring them out of where they've been paul greatly desires that these idle people would be restored and come to obey the command of jesus so in keeping with the military theme the word idol is typically used of a soldier who fails to keep in rank It was a disorderly kind of thing and caused disruption to the community, which is why the English translators for the NIV added the words and disruptive. You see, idle and disruptive are one word in Greek, but they expanded it out so that you would understand the concept of what Paul was talking about here. Because it wasn't just that they were being lazy, but that they were bringing disorder and disrupting the peace of the community of believers by their behavior. And so what they were doing, quite literally, was idly walking. You see, the NIV translates walking to live because that is the concept that Paul is trying to portray here. But to walk was about the manner in in which a person was living, a life was lived. It's about the steady progress that should characterize the Christian, according to New Testament scholar Leon Morris. And so, in this walking was based on the tradition that they received from Paul. You see, the tradition is the concept of the teachings the apostles received from Jesus, and it was Paul who passed it on to them. And so, these idle believers were not walking according to that tradition, and thus were in disobedience to Jesus. So, in their behavior and manner of life, they were being lazy and disrupting the community of believers. And again, the command by Paul was for the community to withdraw from these people. And keep in mind that these letters were often read publicly to the entire church community all at once. So imagine if you knew you were one of these people that was disobeying what Paul was saying, and you were in the church when this letter was read, like, I I know what I would do. I would immediately go into a corner and hide. But that's what's going on here. So these people were being called out publicly but the fact is that, that what they were doing, they should have known was wrong because Paul had also given them these traditions along with everybody else when he had first come. So this wasn't, this wasn't shocking and new information. He had already told them these things. So then he, this gets us to verse 7. Paul almost says this exact same thing, how they ought to follow his example. He almost said the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. And, Thessal- and that the Thessalonians had then at that point followed his example. But some in the community had not, and they chose to do differently. So what Paul is doing here is he's not doing a, you know, the classic parent, do as I say type statement. But he's actually saying, do as I did. This is what I did for you. This is what the example And his example was that he was not idle, as in he did not fail to earn his own living. He worked with his own hands to provide for himself while he lived among them. And so then when he says this statement about, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it, what he means by that is that he refused to impose on anyone for his personal livelihood. You see, in the Hebrew culture, Having food like that is about maintenance, about taking care of people. And there was very, they were very hospitable. And so there was kind of an expectation sometimes for preachers like Paul that they could expect maintenance like this. But Paul is saying, no, I don't want that. But I want to take a moment to clarify something really quickly here. You see, some have read 2 Thessalonians in this particular part and assumed that these people who are idly walking were acting in this way because they believed, as we discussed last week in chapter 2, that Jesus' return had already happened. And so, well, you know what? We don't need to work anymore. But the text simply does not support that. You see, it is possible that their, their mentality about work was because of a Greek dislike of manual labor, such as what Paul talked about here. Rather, they may have felt that they should focus only on spiritual things and not be willing to put in hard work and so everybody else would take care of them. But for those of us in the Western world, we already, what Paul is recommending here is not strange to us. It's, it sounds kind of ordinary. We're not surprised by it. Of course we should work with our own abilities to provide for ourselves. But you see, like I said before, Paul had the absolute right, as discussed in verse 9, to require the Thessalonians to support him while he was there. But to remove any accusations that he was only doing this for money so that other people would take care of him, he relinquished this right of being maintained by them so that he could set an example to them of hard work and labor. And that's exactly, exactly what he did. You see, he emphasizes how hard he worked, laboring and toiling day and night. You see, we learn in Acts 18.3 that Paul was a tent maker. And presumably that is what is meant here of what he was doing. He worked day and night with his hands, making tents to provide for himself, to remove the stigma that he was in this for the money. Because there were preachers of that day who would do this for money and were twisting the words of Jesus to get what they wanted. And so in many ways, Paul probably had to be culturally rude a few times to refuse help from a culture that deeply valued hospitality. But again, this was a model that he was using to, for them to imitate, and he gave them a rule. If someone refuses to work, then they do not eat. Notice that this isn't someone about someone who is unable to work or is facing difficult economic times like a lot of us are facing right now. But it's about one who has the attitude, I will not work, but I am going to still expect the community to provide for me anyways. What Paul is saying to these people is if you want to be part of the community of believers, then you need to be willing to work as hard as he does to provide for yourself. If not, then you're not understanding the true teachings of Jesus and Paul. But then in verse 11, Paul moves on to directly address those who were being idle and says that he's heard. Some among them are doing this very thing. He heard that they were idly walking, as he mentioned earlier. You see, where Paul has heard this from is not important, but what he says is. You see, some in the Thessalonian community were being idle and not seeking to provide for themselves, but instead expecting the community to take care of them. And the NIV does an exceptional job here of catching the Greek wordplay in verse 11, when, it's, when he says, they are not busy, they are busy bodies. And to get it still, to have this great wordplay in English and get the concept just right, that's very hard in translation. Paul uses two Greek participles here. First, he uses ergesomenus, which means working. Then he used paraergesomenus, which means intrusively working or meddling. So what he's saying is they were not ergesomenus, they were paraergesomenus. That's a mouthful. That's Greek for you. Which is why this the not busy, but busy bodies translation works so well. Paul does this to catch these people's attention. And remember, this is not out of a condemning thing, wanting to kick them out, but out of a heart to see them restored and repent. See, he calls them busybodies because they may have been bothering others, pestering them for help instead of working with their own hands. And so then in verse 12, Paul says, such people. And it's not like how that might sound in English. Like that could sound really judgmental in English, like such people. But he does this. This is actually informal. It's a softer way in Greek to refer to them. He shows this softened mentality again by not only commanding, but also urging. It's actually the one place in Paul's writings that we have where we see the combination of commanding and urging together. You see, he's tenderly concerned for these people, wants to see them treated as brothers and sisters in Christ, but also wants to see them stop doing what they're doing. You see, this should give us a great example on how we ought to act toward each other when we're confronting each other tenderly with gentleness and care for the other person to be restored but also still firm holding to the truth unashamedly so then he commands them in the lord jesus christ to settle down and this is one of those times i think that the translation is a little bit weird because the concept is about more about a state of quietness without disturbance so in other words what he wants them to do is instead of disturbing others with their expectation to be helped and taken care of he says quietly go about your hard work and provide for yourself in many ways we could actually call what they were doing with the cultural term mooching i mean to mooch means to ask for something or get something without paying for it you see we've all had friends i know i have before who we know as the moochers But this can disturb the peace of the community because they are acting selfishly and frustrating others within the community. Remember, one of Jesus's primary concerns for the church is for the unity of his people. And mooching like this disturbs that unity. But this is not what Paul wants for the Thessalonians. Instead, we find our second principle to continue the mission is that we work hard at everything we do to advance the mission. Whether at our jobs or in sharing the gospel with others, we work hard like Paul did. And don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. If you work a desk job and sit in front of a computer all day, you are not breaking Paul's directive here. It's about choosing to have a job and to work hard at it so that you can provide for yourself see, I've come to believe that Christians should be the hardest working people in our jobs, in businesses, in our schools, athletics, serving the community, and anything else we set our minds to. Why? Because we're doing it for the glory of God and not for ourselves. Because if we don't work hard, what does that say to others about our faith? That it promotes laziness and mooching off of others and not taking care of ourselves. And otherwise, this distracts people from seeing the good that Christians can do in the world through hard work, and instead makes them see our laziness and our selfishness, which they already see in the rest of the world. And so how does this idea relate to the mission we've been talking about? Because we do not want the reputation of our Savior and our faith to be tarnished. If we are not working hard in everything we do to advance the mission of Jesus, of making disciples, then we're not really showing that we truly believe in it in the first place. You see, the things we are most passionate about and care about most deeply are the things we are willing to put the most work into. So ask yourself this question today. Do I work hard in everything I do so that I may glorify Jesus and advance his mission and also so I can provide for myself? Or do I live more for myself and choose what I want to do with my own time and become more idle? Let's continue, verse 13. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer." So now Paul addresses everyone within the community here. He says, never tire of doing what is good. He means don't get tired of doing the fair, noble thing, even if it's hard. Which is then to do what we would have to do next in verse 14. Which he recommends to take special note of those who are not obeying this particular instruction. And of working with their own hands to provide for themselves. And he says, do not associate with them. He says, sure. And so, sure, that seems harsh to us. And remember, this is all restorative. What Paul is recommending here is not some passive-aggressive shunning the non-believer, but to separate themselves from, from them for the benefit of the unity of the church. New Testament scholar G.K. Beale wrote about this directive that it's not so much absolute isolation of the righteous from the ungodly, but vigilance on the part of the faithful not to allow such people to influence others. See, it's about influence, that we don't want these people who are idly walking to influence others to do the same. So we are to separate from them, but it's all as a part of them so that they would be ashamed. That's why we're doing this. And remember, this is an honor-shame culture that Paul is talking about here, which is something that we are not. We are mostly what's called an innocence-guilt culture, where we are, fo- are taught to follow the rules, and our standing in society is about how well we do that. But in an honor-shame culture, it's not absent of rules, but the rules are more unwritten. It's more like a balance of scales between feeling shame and feeling honor. And if a person feels a lot of shame, they will try and do something in order to rebalance the scales and put it back towards way towards honor. And so people would feel shame in these cultures if expected cultural norms are not fulfilled, and so they would seek to be balanced. So this is what Paul is doing here. He wants them to feel the weight of that shame so that they will then go, okay, I got to do whatever it takes to restore my honor, and they will go and work hard for themselves. Remember, this is all restorative. This isn't a guilt trip, but to try and get them to see their wrong and to change. But it's also why in verse 15, Paul is not asking them to be completely kicked out of the fellowship. Instead, he wants them warned like a brother or sister in Christ so that they can be restored to fellowship. Again, it's all about bringing unity to the church and having everyone on the same page together, focused on the same mission, which brings us to our third principle, is that we promote unity to validate the mission. You see, unity in the church is not merely a polite suggestion, but it's a command from the Lord. Jesus says it very clearly in John 17, 23, I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And as well in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, this is how the world will know that what we believe about Jesus is actually true if we are united and if we love one another as Jesus has first loved us. And sometimes that does mean, however, that we have to do hard things like confront people about their sin so that they can recognize it, be ashamed of it, but then come back to the church and find the forgiveness of Jesus through the community and be restored. You see, we live in a culture of nice where we don't want to say things like this we don't want to confront people but we have to be willing to do so for the benefit of the church and for that individual person so that they can live rightly before god and be restored to the community see paul says in ephesians 4 3 that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace not just desiring unity but eager to maintain it and keep it Because it not only proves that Jesus is true, but keeps us all together as one body focused on one mission to make disciples of all nations. Let's continue verse 16 to finish out the letter. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. See, Paul closes out this letter with a typical conclusion in those days. But again, like he did with the greeting and the introduction, he Christianizes it. First, he starts off by talking about Jesus being the Lord of peace and asking for him to bring peace to the Thessalonians. This is a very typical Jewish thing to say, and Paul is Jewish, so it makes total sense he would do this. See, peace in Hebrew is the word shalom, and it was used as a form of saying hello and goodbye, but in a blessing sort of way, that they were wishing for peace upon people. Shalom literally means wholeness, completeness, soundness, health, safety, and prosperity, carrying it with it the implication of permanence. So, but by writing Lord of Peace, Paul is saying that Jesus is the one who is the source of peace. Only in him can a person find a permanent wholeness or completeness in life. There is nothing else that's going to be able able to provide that for us. So then he says, the Lord be with all of you. By doing this, Paul is once again substituting a statement from the Old Testament referring to Yahweh and placing Jesus in there instead. But this peace Paul is referring to can only exist for the church, for its mission, and for individual believers in Christ through Jesus. It is only through his presence in our lives that can bring about the peace needed for us to accomplish what he's put in front of us. So then in verse 17, he does something kind of funny and out of ordinary here maybe as a way to at least eliminate the possibility that someone could have forged his le- this letter, he signs off in his own handwriting. So what this means is that he actually had somebody else writing for him and dic- he was dictating it to them, but then he made sure in this particular verse to write his own in his own handwriting. What he's doing is he's removing any possibility from kind of a similar confusion that happened in, uh, from what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians and that he addressed in chapter 2 of this letter. He's basically trying to remove any possibility that that this letter could be twisted again and saying, "Oh, Paul said this." He's like, "No, Paul did not because Paul wrote it. Paul wrote this right here. This is from me. This is not from somebody else." But then finally he closes with a blessing of grace on the Thessalonians. You see, typically grace actually was not the word that was used to close out a letter in this day and age. Usually it was the word erosa, which means to be strong. Instead, he uses charis or grace. And so for Paul, by doing this, and he actually bookends the letter, beginning and end, with the concepts of grace. What he's doing is he's saying that grace embraces all that God has done and that he desires, or for that he, that Paul desires that God will do for his Thessalonian friends through Christ Jesus. Meaning for Paul, it always goes back to God's grace being all doing all that is needed for us. You see, grace is not just the forgiveness of sins, but it's the enablement of the entire Christian life. Everything is always about grace. And this brings us to our final principle, is that we rely on the Lord's grace and peace for the success of the mission. You see, it is not dependent on you or I for this mission, but on God's strength and power. I once heard one of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Francis Chan, talk about it this way. Paul talks, the Apostle Paul talks about how we were all dead in our sins in the book of Ephesians, but then we were raised to life in Christ through faith. In other words, here's what's really going on. This mission we've been talking about, what we're really trying to accomplish in it of making disciples is not merely saving people from their sins, but raising dead people to life. Can you or I do that? No, not even in the physical world. Sure, we have things like CPR, but in spiritual death, we have nothing that we can do. We cannot make that happen. And so because what we are ultimately wanting to do is bring dead people to life, we must rely on God's grace and peace in us alone to accomplish it. We cannot hope to change the stubborn human hearts of our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers. Only God can do that. So what we do then is simply make ourselves available as tools and vessels to be used by God. And so have you made yourself available to God to be used in this way? Have you relied on his grace and his peace alone to accomplish this mission he has set before you? I know for me, it is absolutely comforting to think about God being the one to enable me in this mission that he has laid out before us. Because if it were up to me, I'd choose to stay quiet, be in in my home with my family, and make no noise to disturb my neighbors. But that is not the mission he has laid out for us. And we far too easily allow ourselves to be distracted by subordinate priorities. So ask yourself this question, what has distracted you from this mission? Is it your family, your job, your friends, your entertainment, your own use of time? In what ways can you refocus yourself to make the mission of Christ primary in your life while these others that we talked about take their proper place behind that? And how have you been idle about the call of God on your life to make disciples of all nations and expecting other people to do it instead of yourself? And what excuses have you made in the past about why you don't continue this mission? You see, you can just start small by doing it in your own home with your family, by training them to follow Jesus. Or if you don't have a family, you, live, you might live by yourself. Look at the friends that are around you, your neighbors. How can you show them Jesus and bring them to a relationship with him? Don't let small inconveniences or social, social excuses keep you from this mission. I know it's something I'm working on very hard in my own life to change. And I pray that you are working on it too because our primary mission is to make disciples and we must rely on the Lord to accomplish it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have given us your grace to accomplish the mission that you have laid out before us. Jesus, that we don't have to try and make it happen for ourselves. Jesus, you raised the dead to life. You raised Jesus to life. And so you can do that with any human heart. So God, I pray that we would seek those who are in our spheres of influence to show them who you are. And Jesus, that we could take some time to recognize that you can use us in incredible and powerful ways to make yourself known in the world. So Jesus, we give this to you. Help us to continue what you've put in front of us. In Jesus' name, amen.